See you all. So today we are beginning our Advent series, sermon series. Uh, the Advent season is the four weeks that lead up to Christmas. And in the traditional church calendar, those four weeks have kind of different themes. Uh, there's a theme of hope, which we'll be talking about today. Then there's peace, which Scott McPeak is going to talk about next week. Then there's joy, which Josh Osborne is going to share on the week after. Then I'll finish up this Advent series by talking about love on Christmas Eve. And so we're going to just focus on these themes of Advent as we're celebrating the coming of Christ into the world. And today we're going to look at one of the most uh, famous Christmas passages in the Old Testament. And by doing that, I just want to spread a little Christmas cheer, okay? Are you excited about Christmas? Amen. Okay, it's a couple of years. That's okay. I understand that. Actually, right, Christmas can be a little bit of an ambiguous time for many of us. Some of us love it, we're all in, others of us it can be a difficult and painful time. Uh, most of us, it's probably kind of something in between, in the middle. I actually really love this time of year. And one of my favorite things about Christmas is, of course, the many treats and holiday beverages. And one of my favorite holiday beverages is, can you guess what that is? Wow. Yeah, it's eggnog, right there. All right, eggnog, come on, eggnog. Sweet, nutmeggy, nog. Every year I have to get some of the stuff. For me, it's just kind of part of the holiday season. Any fans? Okay, yeah, I, yeah we're, we're in the, in the minority there. Um, I think part of the problem, it has the word egg in the name of a drink, or... It could be the taste and texture. I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm going to pour myself some here. There you go. Can you all see that? All right. This isn't spiked, I promise. So there you have a frothy glass of eggnog. Uh, so now I need your opinion. I filled this cup halfway with eggnog. So would you say this cup is now what? Half what? Full. The majority said full. There's a minority that said maybe empty. Now this might seem kind of silly, but this is kind of a well-known psychological thought experiment for determining personality types, right? There are half glass half full people. There are glass half empty people. So a person who looks at this glass right here and sees that it's half full, these are typically called optimists. Optimists, not optimists, that's a transformer. Optimists. (laughs) But optimists, they look at a situation, they look at a set of facts, and they see the bright side of things, how things are likely going to improve or get better, to work out for the benefit of all. That's how kind of they interpret their circumstances. People who identify with a glass half empty are typically called pessimists. So again, this is kind of very broad generalities, but pessimists, they look at the same set of circumstances and they see that things are going to be much more complex than anyone realizes. Things are likely not going to work out. 
Things are probably going to get worse than anybody expects, especially for themselves. Probably some people are a mix of both. But what's interesting also is I think this time of year tends to accentuate people's personality types towards optimism or towards pessimism. Some of us love Christmas. We love the nog. We love the festivity and the cheer and the treats. And we enjoy being around our friends and family. There are others of us who, for various different reasons, this time of year kind of accentuates our pessimism, right? We kind of see through all the superficial commercialism or whatever. And like you're kind of got to be around your family, which maybe you don't really like. Our personalities get accentuated this time of year. Now here's a question to think about. Let's, you don't have to look at that anymore. Hang on. Let's move that back there. <clears throat> Let's move this half-empty glass of nog there. Here's a question to think about. If I say that I'm a follower of Jesus, what's the mindset that most, that's most consistent with what it means to be a, a Christian? Optimism or pessimism? So it's actually maybe not a very simple question to answer. Because I think we can say... Okay, pessimism seems off the table, right? In the sense that the core belief, as, as our core belief as Christians, a community of Jesus followers, is in a God who comes among us and identifies and participates in our suffering, in our hardship, and he conquered death through his love. It seems that, that, that to me, to believe that and to confess the allegiance to that kind of God means that pessimism is no longer really an option. But I would actually also argue that maybe optimism might be off the table too. In a sense that, Optimism can be very naive. So if you read the scriptures, you see that they really explore the depth and the brokenness and the selfishness of the human heart. They don't gloss over that stuff. And it's not just the scriptures. I mean, just look at human history. Wars and racism, genocides and shootings. So it seems like optimism is a bit naive, but pessimism isn't really an option because of the reality of the gospel. And so the passage that we're going to explore, I think, offers us a third way. And it's really what, it really takes into account the realities of both. It's what the biblical authors call hope. As followers of Jesus, we are not really optimists or pessimists. We're people of hope. And hope is different than optimism. There's this guy named Cornell West. He's a professor of religious studies at Harvard. He also taught at Yale. He says this. He says, optimism and hope are different. Optimism tends to be based on the notion that there's enough evidence out there that allows us to think that things are going are to get better. It's much more rational, and it's deeply secular. Whereas hope looks at the evidence and says it doesn't look good at all, but I'm going to make a leap of faith. I'm going to go beyond the evidence in the attempt to dream new possibilities. Hope is based on a vision of the future that becomes contagious enough to allow us to engage in heroic actions against the odds. That is hope. Now, I might quibble with a few of the things he's saying there, but what I thought was most interesting is the description of optimism as rational and deeply secular and very different from any kind of religious hope. And I think that resonates with the message of the scriptures, because what he's saying is optimism is based on my circumstances. If I can look at the evidence around me, and I can interpret it in a way that says, yeah, things are likely going to improve, I can kind of see the movement toward things getting better, therefore I'm okay. And that's fine as far as it goes, but what do you do when there's no evidence that things are going to get better? What do you do when the evidence of your life or the world around you points in the exact opposite direction? That things are not going to get better. In fact, maybe things are going to get worse. What, where are you then? And so this is where I think we need a deep understanding of Christian hope. Because Christian hope is not based on my circumstances. 
Christian hope keeps my heart and my mind alert and alive to what God is doing in the world. And it has nothing to do with how well my life is going or how well the world is going. And it seems like it's the kind of hope that I and we in the world desperately need. And it's the kind of hope we see in the passage we're going to look at today. So you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. It might be one of those times you need to use the table of contents in your Bible. Go for it. No shame whatsoever. Isaiah, chapter 9. We're going to dive into verse 1. Isaiah 9, 1. It starts this way. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee by, of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. All clear? No, it's not clear, is it? What on earth? So there's gloom, there's distress. We're talking about the past and the future, something to do with the land of Zebulun, which sounds like it's from Star Trek. Like, what's happening? Welcome to the reading, the ancient Hebrew prophets. So we're going to stop for a moment, just kind of talk about who, what, when, where. So Isaiah, who's a prophet, wrote this. Uh, He comes onto the scene of Israel about 250 years after David. And he's on the scene at a very dark chapter in Israel's history. For the most part, the previous 250 years and a couple hundred years that are to follow are dark years for Israel. There's, not, there's very few good kings, um, just not very many. On the whole, Israel's kings and the people, they've abandoned the covenant that they made with Yahweh, the God who redeemed them out of Egypt and slavery and brought them into the promised land. The kings, for the most part, they've abandoned Yahweh. They worship other gods. So do the people. They are... They're allowing all kinds of injustice and neglect of the poor and the very, th- the, the very things in, that in the covenant they made with Yahweh that they said they wouldn't do or allow. It's precisely what they allow and what they do now. And so Isaiah's role is, first of all, to call them on the carpet for what they're doing, to call them to obey the terms of the covenant, and if they don't, to warn the people that Yahweh would give them over to the consequences of their, of their decisions and their actions. Which were, the consequences were, that the big bad nation of Assyria was going to bring doom on these lands that were mentioned. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which were up in Galilee, which was part of the northern part of Israel. Isaiah was kind of down in the southern part of Israel. But this is the event that's happening in Isaiah's time and what he's talking about. And this is all kind of Bible trivia stuff, but it's important to understand the story. So around the same time Isaiah is writing the scripture, we looked at the king of Assyria is, or just, just started moving into the land of Israel and is beginning to take out the northern region. Assyria is taking over the towns, annexing them, deporting all the Israelites who are living there. The equivalent in our day would, I, be, I think, be like Canada gets aggressive for whatever reason. And they invade the state of Washington. And all the population is deported. You have aunts and uncles, you have extended family, they're gone. They're deported. You never see them ever again. This invasion of Assyria was what wiped most of the tribes of Israel off the map of history until this very day. And it's a result, Isaiah says, of their horrible decision in abandoning their faithfulness to Yahweh. So in chapter 9, verse 1, Isaiah refers to this. Let's read it again. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. He says, in the past, he humbled the land. But is that the end of the story? Is that the last word? No. What's it say? That was in the past. 
But what about the future? It says God's going to honor the same exact region. In other words, in Isaiah's day, he sees that Israel's sin has led to this region of Israel being devastated, but that's not the final word. When you're dealing with God of Scripture, human sin and rebellion never gets the last word. God's will is to bless, to save, and to restore. And so in the future, he's going to honor the same region of the land. How? Let's keep reading. Verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So Assyria comes in and devastates the land. And it's like somebody turned the lights off. Things go really dark. And you can imagine what these Israelites are thinking. Right? Like, where's God? What's happening? What, is, what about his promises to Abraham? And so on. The lights have turned out. But that's not the last word. He says, those walking in deep darkness, for those walking in deep darkness, a light is going to turn back on again. And here are the metaphors, the kind of the images are just going to spill out. Such a beautiful poem. Verse 3, here's what it's going to be like. He says, you will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. So Yahweh is going to restore the nation, and it's going to be like harvest time. So you know, you plant your seeds in the spring, and you water, and you wait, and you work, and you tend the ground, you weed. So that's a lot of W's, I think. Work, weed, water, wait, right? And the months go by, and then you begin to see your hope come to fruition and grow. And then the harvest time comes, and you have your olives, your tomatoes, or whatever. It's, that, it's the joy that you have, it's the joy of seeing your hope fulfilled. Or it's going to be like soldiers who just want to battle and they're stoked because they get all this free stuff now. It's like harvest time. It's like soldiers celebrating over a plunder. Verse 4, but why? For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. So destroying the army of Midian refers to a well-known event in Israel's story. This is the story of Gideon in the book of Judges with his little band of 300 soldiers that just overcomes an army of Tens of thousands with fire torches and clay pots, right? It's a cool story. So it's just like when we were rescued from our oppressors way back when. Yahweh's going to deliver us from the yoke. A yoke was this image of slavery in the ancient world. Isaiah, Isaiah says God's going to break the yoke and the rod of the oppressor. Verse 5. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. All the boots and the clothes that are stained with blood from oppression and war. All that's done away with. That's amazing. Now verse 6 and 7. This is how this will come about. This is what all the images and metaphors refer to. Verse 6 and 7. Famous Christmas verse. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called. So here are the symbolic names given to this king. Wonderful counselor which doesn't mean he's going to be a good therapist. That's what counselor means in English. It doesn't mean that in the Bible. A, a counselor in the Bible is a strategist, someone who does military or political planning. So Isaiah is saying he is a king, and through strategy and planning, he will accomplish wonderful acts and feats of salvation and deliverance and on and on. Mighty God, everlasting Father. Isaiah is saying this child, the son Jesus, will be the embodiment of the Father, the God, among the people. 
And what's the final name given? Prince of Peace. So peace means the absence of conflict in English, right? But the word used here in the Hebrew is the word shalom, which also means the absence of conflict, but also the presence of a whole bunch of other things. Unity, relational harmony, friendship, abundance. That's shalom. He will be the prince of shalom. Verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, meaning he'll be a descendant of David, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. It's like this big crescendo here at the end. This is what's going to happen when Yahweh turns the lights back on. He will restore and bring a king. He'll turn the lights back on and it will be an era of shalom. And it will bring peace and joy and freedom and so on. But the thing is, there's no reason for optimism in Isaiah's day. In fact, things look pretty bad. And he just boldly sets out this bright vision of hope. Hope has nothing to do with your current circumstances. It has to do with Yahweh's promise to bring blessing. Now here's where things get really interesting, I think, all right? This passage, Isaiah chapter 9, is the famous Christmas passage, especially verses 6 and 7. These meet their fulfillment in Jesus, and the New Testament Gospels actually make this very clear, that Jesus brought these promises to their fulfillment. So let's read that. Matthew chapter 4, just one of many examples, but you'll see why we look at it here. So chapter, Matthew chapter 4, 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Hint, hint. Then he just comes right out and says it here. Verse 14. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, light is dawn. Then Matthew says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's arrived. It's here. Matthew connects the dots for us that Jesus was returning to the very region that was taken out by Assyria in the past. And this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's word, that in the future God would honor the same region again and use it as a staging ground for the coming king to rescue his people. So some of us, we look at that and we're kind of like, oh, cool. That's like, yeah, I like how the Old Testament and the New Testament kind of come together there. But there's a number of things going on here that's, that are actually very interesting. And to me, give us deep insight into the nature of biblical hope. So let's kind of just ask the first question here. How long is the time of Jesus separated from Isaiah? This is like real Bible trivia. Anybody know? Yeah, it's about six, 700 years. Is that a long time? Yeah, it's quite a long time. Disaster strikes in Isaiah's lifetime, but because of what Isaiah knows about God's promise to Abraham, he knows that this cannot be the final word. And so he holds out this vision of hope for the, the king coming. And does the king come? Yeah. The point of the poem is not to give you a timeline. The point of the poem is to tell us something about God's character, that God's promises can be trusted. He's going to fulfill his promises to redeem and to save no matter what the present circumstances look like. We know that he has good plans for us. Jeremiah 29, right? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. 
plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope in the future. Even if there's no ground for optimism in the present, we can still have hope in God's character and in his promises. That's the first part of biblical hope. So number one, hope is based on God's promises. But point number two, biblical hope is also about trusting in God's freedom and God's creativity for how exactly he's going to fulfill his promises. And the reality of the story of the people of Israel and the story of the people who profess allegiance to God is that the timelines God works on are not always easy, are they? You read the book of Psalms and it's full of people going, how long, Lord? Right? How long? They're watching evil erupt in their day and like the lights are turned out and they're going like wondering, like, where is God? Is there a reason to hope in moments like that? God's promises say yes. The Bible, the book of hope, says yes. But the fact that God is always going to be faithful to his promises means that I can't then presume to tell God how he has to fulfill them or the timeline for that fulfillment. This is the wrestling match of God's people throughout history. The timeline is sometimes difficult. Do you want to wait 600 years? I don't. I'm not done. I stand in front of the mirror. Okay, amen. Uh, they call the shots back there, you know? Do you want to wait 600 years? I don't, right? That's difficult for us to swallow, and that's okay. But that's what the book of Psalms is for in the Bible, to legitimize the struggle and the tension of holding on to hope. And God's promises when it looks like I have no reason for optimism in the present. And the timelines are just where we're getting started. So go back to Isaiah 9 with me. Look at verse 7 again. So Matthew just told us that when Jesus came into the region of Galilee announcing the kingdom, it was the beginning of the fulfillment of these promises. And it says, Of the greatness of his kingdom and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's beautiful. But here's a question. Can you think of how Jesus fulfilled these promises? Uh, a kingdom of peace forever and ever, justice and righteousness forever. Did he fulfill those promises in any kind of straightforward way? To me, it does not seem like Jesus fulfilled those promises in any kind of a straightforward way. What made Jesus so scandalous was not that he claimed to be the Messiah. Israel was waiting for a Messiah. The problem was that he claimed to be the Messiah, but the kinds of things that he was doing did not fit the expectations of the, that the people had. So Isaiah 9 tells us that when this king was born, that the yoke and the burden of, of the oppressor, that the power of the enemy is going to be shattered. Okay, so did Jesus come and trounce an enemy? What big bad enemy did people think Jesus was going to come and trounce on as the Messiah? Rome, right? It was a big bad empire of Jesus' day. Jesus didn't target didn't set his target on anybody in Rome. But Jesus did very clearly set his target on an enemy, right? What enemy is that? It's the enemy that he told his followers to pray that we would not fall into temptation of. The New Testament calls this being, by, very, by a bunch of names, the evil one, Satan, the accuser. And you know when we hear that, maybe we still have this image of like somebody in red tights holding a pitchfork or something like that, but 
What the Bible is trying to tell us is so profound about the nature of evil in our world. It's not like, oh, the, the devil made me do it or something. The fact is, the most consistent name that evil is given, this being is given in the scriptures, is the accuser or the liar. And it's this force, this being at work in and among humanity, lying to us about who we are, about who God is, about who other people are. And it's the tragic way that humans give in to the enemy and those lies that results in these eruptions of evil. And we're naive to think that this is going to change just on its own if humanity is left to its own devices. Because it just keeps happening. And it's so destructive. And Jesus clearly said that was his target. The power of evil was his target. Because he believed that if you hit that enemy, the enemy that is lying to and destroying human beings made in the image of God, if you can destroy that enemy and find a way to renew and restore the human heart and mind, and through God's power, through God's grace, bring new life, then you've really brought something worthy of being called salvation into the human story. And so Jesus goes around announcing this reign of this kingdom of God that he's bringing to bear, and it includes tax collectors and prostitutes among the community of the forgiven. Those who Jesus' grace and forgiveness are defeating and conquering that evil and bringing new life inside of them. So Jesus clearly is announcing a kingdom. He has his target on an enemy. So what's this, but what about this whole stuff about the throne? Was Jesus ever recognized as a king? Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Did Jesus ever take the government upon his shoulders? Oh, you bet he did. He took the Roman execution rack on his shoulders. He gets a robe, right? He gets a crown. He gets exalted. He gets lifted up. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I will be lifted up. It's language of exaltation and enthronement, but on a cross. And so what each of the Gospels tells us is the surprising, unexpected way that the God of Israel, the God of the Scriptures, is is fulfilling his promises. Not only is the timeline surprising to us, but the actual way that he's fulfilling his promises is unexpected. This is how the kingdom of God is coming. It's this upside-down value system of the kingdom of God where God wins by giving up his life, right? He conquers by losing because his love is stronger than even the strongest weapon that the enemy of evil has at his hands, which is death. Let death do its worst to the Son of God. Jesus' love is more powerful. This is the surprising way that Jesus takes the throne of David. This is the surprising way that Jesus creates a pathway for shalom in people's lives. Who saw this coming? Almost nobody in Jesus' day put together that this was the way the Messiah was going to conquer. I guarantee you, none of us would have thought of this plan. So like, you know, like, no-name guy, born in a podunk country town, has a band of fishermen and prostitutes, gets executed by the Romans. That's the plan. You know what I'm saying? Like, what? But biblical hope is about trusting God's promises and also trusting in God's creativity and freedom to fulfill these promises in surprising, unexpected, unpredictable ways. So what's that mean for us, and how is this a word of God for us as individuals or a community? So like I said earlier, there might be some who are not very cheery this time of year. There's some of us, or possibly lots of us, we're with the Israelites wondering, like, where's God? And it feels like somebody's turned the lights out. And it might be your life circumstances. Maybe this is going to be a Christmas where we are remembering a loss. 
or it's the first Christmas without somebody. It might be for some of us, we're not looking forward to being with our families because it just reminds us of how screwed up we are. When we revert to third grade mode when we get around them, it just makes us sad. There are others of us who love it. We get around family and friends, and we love every part of it, retelling the stories, and eggnog and everything. And it's so great, but we, so we just accept that as a gift. But there are many of us, or maybe some of us, we're just wondering, we're in the valley, wondering, like, where is God? How's he going to fulfill his promises to me? I can't hear him anymore. And I actually think that's an important part of the journey as we follow God. That's why the book of Psalms is there in the scripture, to validate these feelings that as followers of God, we are going to have sometimes of wondering, what's the plan, God? But see, here's the paradox. The power of God is Jesus going to the valley with us, right? becoming Emmanuel, God, with us, becoming king and initiating the kingdom as Jesus on the cross. That's the paradox. It's the core of biblical hope. Biblical hope is God working out his goodness in our lives in ways that might surprise us, in ways that we wouldn't have anticipated. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus meets us in the dark valleys where we're waiting for God to turn the lights back on again. And he will. He will. That's that's his promise. He will. But it may take place in a time and in a way that we cannot predict. This is the hope offered to us. Amen. Could I have the ushers pass out the bread and the cups? Or we have it all? Anybody need communion? Communion cups? Anybody? Raise your hand if you need a cup. Just one? Okay. So as we come to communion, I think the bread... And the cup is the perfect way to think about God's promises and creativity and his freedom to work out salvation in our lives in ways that we cannot predict. Communion is a reminder of the profound message of hope that Isaiah shared centuries ago and that finds its fulfillment in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Advent season is a reminder that God's promises endure even in the midst of darkness and uncertainty. That hope is not mere optimism based on circumstances but a deep trust in God's promises and the unexpected ways he will fulfill them. So there might be some of us who need to take the bread and cup and to ask Jesus to make himself real to us while we're in the valley. There might be some of us who just need to celebrate the gift of grace and life today as we take communion. So as we partake in communion, let us remember the sacrifice of Christ symbolized in the bread and the cup in his broken body and shed blood we find the ultimate expression of God's love and the fulfillment of his promise to break the yoke of slavery and bring light to those in darkness. Amen. You may partake when you're ready. Amen. Let's have, let's have the ministry team come forward again if they would. If you didn't get prayer earlier, we'd like to give you an opportunity for that. After I pray, we invite you to stay for a time of ministry and prayer. Um, our prayer team will be up here and available to stand with you. Listen to your heart. Lift your needs up to our Heavenly Father. This is a safe place to share, to experience the love and the power of God through prayer, no matter what you're going through. You don't have to face alone. We're here for you. Okay, can I just send you out with a benediction? So whether this Christmas season brings joy or challenges,
Let the hope we have in Christ anchor our souls. May we embrace the paradox of God's power revealed in his upside-down kingdom and find comfort in the assurance that in his time and in his way, God will fulfill his promises in our lives. As we leave this place, let us carry the message of hope into a world that longs for the true light that shines in the darkness. Amen? Amen. Amen.